This police sergeant was shot multiple times during a SWAT callout with a high-velocity rifle. He barely survived with several life-changing, drastic injuries. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. In the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences, their realities of investigating crimes, plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma, police, first responders, military, and victims of crime share their stories. Hi, I'm John J. Wiley. In addition to being a broadcaster, I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com and also like us on Facebook. Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. There's only one official Facebook page for the show. Do a search on Facebook for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and be sure to click like. Calling us from the Chickasaw, Oklahoma area, on the phone, Police Sergeant Matthew Schoolfield. Thanks for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Show. Very much appreciated. Thanks for having me. I want to paraphrase real quick. And then we're going to have a conversation about what happened. Uh, you were a uh, sergeant uh, also on what a lot of people call SWAT team or quick response team or special response team. Uh, you're called out on a SWAT call out. You were shot multiple times, severely injured, barely survived. You have life-changing, dramatic injuries. And without being melodramatic, you're in a situation now where you don't know if you're going to have a light-duty position with your department, you're going to be retired, or going to be fired. Is that correct? That is correct. And that's a situation that you and I both know happens a lot, and it happens all across the United States. When I was a rookie police, and I'm sure when you're a rookie, you were told, if something happens to you, we got your back, we'll take care of you and your family. And what we really found out is that means if you're killed in line of duty, but if you're injured, you're basically on your own. Yeah, that's pretty much how it is. That's a sad situation. Uh, before we go into the details of what happened to you, uh, Matt, uh, how long have you been in law enforcement? 12 years. Not a rookie. And by the way, being a sergeant, it takes some time on the street. Uh, the average for a lot of agencies is about seven years. And that's when I got promoted. So thank you for your service. And I wish that we had more upbeat stuff to talk about, but these are stories that need to be told. And quite honestly, the news media doesn't give our severely injured officers a platform to tell their stories, do they? No, they don't. All right. So we're going to tell yours. Uh, let's go to, I believe it was September of 2017, correct? Yes, sir. What happened? So day shift patrol had encountered a victim of a sexual assault, possible kidnapping that had escaped that had severe injuries and were called to the ER to investigate. So that led them to an address where they went to attempt to make contact with the suspect named in the situation. He wouldn't answer the door for patrol. So due to the nature of the injuries and the crime and some past involvements at the location, it was determined to use the SRT team to go execute a search warrant and and that's what a lot of folks would call SWAT and this is obviously a violent crime by a violent criminal that had a past record correct well his record he had some involvements but a lot of one necessarily him it was just a location itself and some of the people that were known to come and go okay all right so you get you're part of the SWAT team the SRT team and you get suited up and show up correct yes sir Walk us through what happened. So there's a long driveway that leads to this property, and there's multiple structures on the property. One of them's a detached garage. 
that is known to have other people staying in it that come and go, possible weapons and drug activity. So we have two teams. One team's going to clear the garage because it's on our way to the main residence. And then once that's cleared and secure, we're going to make our way to the main residence. So for the the task garage portion of the search warrant, I'm just overwatched to cover that team. And they proceed to clear that structure and detain two individuals. And they're not being very cooperative. They're being unruly and causing disturbances. That's pretty typical. I mean, you and I are both used to that. It's not, people might think it's alarming, but that's something in law enforcement you get used to it, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. You get used to it. They get them under control. And it took them a while to get in the structure. It was kind of barricaded and locked up from the inside. So that kind of already gave us a bad feeling. Uh, so that's secure. And I'm, I lead the next team up to the primary residence. I'm the point man in Oklahoma. Most generally for search warrants, we have to do knock and announce. We don't usually get a no-knock search warrant. So we go up, uh, knock and announce on the, the front door of the residence, and obviously we don't get any answer or no replies. So at that point, we call what's called a breacher up to ram the door to bust it open. Now, on this search warrant, we're not actually going to make entry into the residence. We just want to open that front door to give us an avenue to call out for him to come out to us. So when the breacher gets up, using a batting ram, real big, strong guy, it takes four or five hits. So already, that's unusual because he's he usually pops his door on the first hit. Was that a sign that the door was fortified? It was a, a potential sign that something was securing the door or placed behind it. So we just don't usually see doors unless we're talking, you know, heavy industrial buildings or things like that that have steel frames and doors like that. Usually house residential doors are really easy to break with a ram. If people realized how insecure their front door is, they'd be alarmed. Yes. So when you're banging on it and using the, the, the breaching tool and it's not budging and you're hitting it four or five times, I'm sure red flags are starting to go off in your head somewhere. Yes. I've already got that tingling you know, going down my spine that something's not right. And then on that fourth or fifth hit, I don't know for sure how many hits it was, the door finally popped. And usually when it pops free, they just swing wide open. But on this one, it just went like maybe a foot or two. And then I could tell something had caught it again. At that point, I immediately start yelling barricade and try to move in a position so that the breacher can get out of there and that I'm providing cover for him. And in law enforcement, when you have that doorway and you've got someone in the doorway, what term do you use to describe that? We use the door and open avenues. We call them the fatal funnels. That's right. And that's why you, you never want to be standing stationary in, in front of a door or window, especially on a SWAT type uh, room entry or house entry. Right. This is like when you're in a business or in your own home and somebody comes through the door, everybody automatically looks at the door. It's the same thing in our line of work. When they know somebody's going to come in the house, you know where they're coming at. So their whole attention is devoted to that door. So this guy inside the house, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming he's still inside the house because I do know a little bit of your story. 
you've yep. got a situation where you have to knock and announce your presence. So he's already been alerted that the police are out front. You've knocked on the door three or four times or five times with a breacher trying to knock the door open because you wouldn't respond to it. So he's also more aware that there's law enforcement at the door and they're trying to force entry into the room. So he's had plenty of warning, advance warning, and prepare himself that this was happening. Also on top of that, he would have heard the commotion in the detached garage too. So he definitely knew we were outside. About how much time between the garage and actually by the time entry was made to the door, about how much time it elapsed? Mm, I'd probably say 15 minutes, maybe 20 at the most. So he had plenty of time to think about and plan out what he's going to do. And he knew why you were there. Yep. And he knew that a crime had occurred earlier and that the police wouldn't want to talk to him. And... What I'm getting at is, do you think he had time to fortify his position and prepare, a, 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 like you said, a barricade response? Oh, yes. Uh, patrol had came. This happened kind of earlier in the morning. And then patrol had came out and tried to make contact. His vehicle was outside. They'd seen somebody in the residence. They knew somebody was in there but wouldn't come to the door. So they left somebody to watch the residence as they went to you know, talk to the district attorney's office and start on the search warrant process. But how many people were in your team as you're at the door? I had a, a team of five members at the front door. And by the way, if you watch television, you watch movies, you watch the news, and you see clips of police doing raids, they're loud, they're noisy. The SWAT guys typically, see, I never was a SWAT guy. The SWAT guys are typically... Uh, quieter, they don't speak as much as like the narcotics guys did, but they were loud. Uh, this guy had ample time. And when we return, we're going to find out what he did. We are talking with Police Sergeant Matthew Schoolfield. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. One of the questions I get all the time is how can I show my support for law enforcement? We're all busy. We've got busy lives, but there's something oh so simple you can do with our Facebook page. Search for Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show Facebook page. And when you see a post you agree with that resonates with you, share it, especially episodes of the podcast. To do all that, just search for us on Facebook, look for Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, and be sure to click like. Back to the conversation with Police Sergeant Matthew Schoolfield from Chickasha, Oklahoma Police Department. I apologize in advance. I have a difficult time with a lot of the Oklahoma towns and county names, and we've had guests on before from Oklahoma. And just bear with me because I'm from the East Coast and I'm just not hip on all the Oklahoma terms. Uh, we're talking with you about a SWAT call-out or SRT call-out. That's, I think, what your agency called them. Special response team, is that what it was? Yes, sir. And you have a violent crime involving a sexual assault and things of that nature. And one of the things I'm very happy to say that you are the same, apparently, school thought as I am. I don't like giving these guys any publicity. I don't mention their names. I don't want to talk about them. Uh, this shows to talk about you and what you went through. Uh, we last left off going to break. Your SWAT team had hit the door three or four times. It had been barricaded. And eventually the door came open and you had 
the officer with the ram or their breacher tool basically in a funnel of fire a fatal funnel right in front of the door moved him out of the way and then what happened well, like I said, when he finally was able to get the door to come loose, it only swung that foot or two. And that's when I started yelling barricade. So that's his clue. He needs to move out and get out of the way. And as, you know, we wear the, the body armor similar to what the military wears in combat. And it's, you know, heavy rated and it has those armor plates inside the vest. And our, our plates are on our chest and on our back. So to our side, and things like that, we're more vulnerable. So as he's turning away, he's obviously exposing more vulnerable areas. So I take, you know, a step or two to the left to try to get between him and the fatal funnel as he's falling back. And that's at the time I hear gunshots. How many gunshots were there? Do you remember? Or could you tell I, that point? I heard two, maybe three before everything was black. So you were obviously hit. Yes. And you weren't really aware of how many gunshots there were. And quite often, we can tell the difference in sound approximately between a small caliber handgun, uh, a larger caliber handgun, a 12-gauge shotgun, for example, and or a rifle. Could you tell from at that point, could you tell what kind of weapon the guy was using? Well, in the team, we we use the AR or the M4 platform, which is a 5.56, 223 round. And plus, I have 20 years in military. And I immediately knew this was a large caliber rifle, larger than what we were carrying. And when I heard those first two to three shots, I knew it was also at a close range because you could just feel the concussion of the round coming through the door and the wall. And then you're out. Lights out. Yep, I blacked out from, I assume, my injuries from getting hit multiple times. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. How many times were you hit? I was hit for sure five times. There was a couple of impacts on my vest that they weren't sure if it was one or two strikes. And of those ones that hit your vest, how many actually penetrated your your upper body area? Well, I was struck twice in the right arm. Uh, one that went through my forearm that severed my hand from my elbow. Uh, there was like a little bit of skin and a couple tendons holding my hand to my arm. I had one round that went through my upper bicep into my armpit area and out the back, a clean through and through, fortunately for me. And then one round actually went through my helmet and penetrated and went down the right side of my head and through my ear, the other two to three rounds were stopped by my chest plate. It's amazing you're here to talk about it. Yes, it's definitely a blessing to still be here. And and uh, so for those who don't believe uh, in a higher power, or uh, for those who do, between this higher power and the medical team, it's, it's miraculous that you survived your injuries. Yes. When you said you were hit in the right arm, it was not just like a graze wound. This was a catastrophic injury, wasn't it? Yes. What kind of weapon did this guy have? I knew you wouldn't find out till later. What what caliber, what type of weapon was it? He had an AR-10, which shoots a 7.62 by 51 or a three oh eight equivalent. Which is a big, big, and I'm not a ballistics guy, uh, but that's a big, high caliber, high velocity round that's intended to do maximum amount of damage. Yes. 
and what kind of damage did this do to you? Well, like I said, that one round that went through my forearm actually exploded both bones in my arm and tore through all the muscle, tissue, ligaments, nerves, arteries. I I literally had a little bit of skin, several tendons, and one artery left intact holding my lower arm to my upper arm, to my elbow area. I know we've kind of fast-forwarded, so I want to step back a little bit. Uh, you guys got the door. The guy opens fire. You said you heard like two, maybe three rounds, and then you were unconscious and not obviously not aware of what happened at that point. But did you stay unconscious the entire time you were on the porch and then come to the hospital? No, I came aware or regained consciousness. It's hard to say how long, but from video playback and things like that we're thinking i was unconscious for about 40 to 50 seconds and when i regained consciousness i could still hear gunfire and i could distinguish between the ar-10 the suspect was shooting and our rifles in the gunfight and by the way 40 to 50 seconds in a gunfight is an eternity yes these things i've always heard people say it's like you get time distortion it seems like things slow down and what took five seconds or 10 seconds feels like two or three minutes but to have 40 or 50 seconds where you're unconscious on the front porch while a firefight's going on literally is a lifetime yeah it seemed like a long time time kind of slows down so you come to are you at this point aware of uh, how bad your injuries were or that you were even injured yeah when i when i regained consciousness of course, I'm laying face down at this point, and my right arm's kind of out in front of me, so I can see it almost immediately. Uh, I can see that I'm bleeding heavily and that my arm's pretty messed up. Uh, I also notice my helmet's been knocked off and land out there away from me. And it's, I just, I kind of still feel real disoriented and dazed at the moment, but it's it's coming back to me. And are you right-handed or left-handed? I'm I'm right-handed. So with a severe injury to your right hand, you're really not in a position to be able to defend yourself either with a rifle or with a pistol. Right. Uh, when I went down, uh, I fell on top of my rifle. So it was underneath me at that point. And then my handgun is on a drop-down leg holster on my right leg, which I'm unable to get to because my right arm doesn't work and I can't reach across in the prone position on the ground with my left arm to even try to get it out of the holster. I would imagine that what must be going through your mind is I've got to find a way to get out of here. I got to find a way to get some cover. Uh, was that was happening? Was that was one of the first thoughts in your mind? Yeah, I knew I knew I needed to get out of there because I was bleeding pretty bad. Uh, plus, one of the one of my partners who's also was in the military with me had come up trying to get to me under the heavy amount of gunfire. And at that point, I could also see the suspects moving around through the partially open door. And I wasn't sure if he was coming back to try to finish me or what. So that there was an exchange of gunfire at that point, And I thought that was my best chance to crawl out of this dangerous area before somebody else got shot or he got back to finish me. We were talking with Police Sergeant Matthew Schoolfield. Uh, about the night he was shot multiple times on a SWAT call-out with devastating injuries, barely survived. He's got severe, life-changing physical injuries and is basically in a position where 
He doesn't know what the future holds for him. Into a short break. You don't want to miss the rest of this conversation. We'll be right back. Remember when news was free? Be sure to check out the Newsbreak app. It's free. And be sure to follow the Law Enforcement Talk radio show and podcast on the Newsbreak app. Newsbreak is your number one local news app for current events, free live news for you and your community. Download the Newsbreak app today for free. And be sure to follow the Law Enforcement Talk radio show and podcast on the Newsbreak app. That's the free Newsbreak app. Be sure to look for and follow the Law Enforcement Talk radio show and podcast. Return conversation with Police Sergeant Matthew Schoolfield. Matt, you were shot multiple times. The fact that you survived this is uh, mind-blowing to me. But what I find even more intriguing is what's going through your mind when you're still basically pinned down in a firefight with severe injuries and, and trying to figure out a way to crawl out of there. Yeah. Like I said, from my military experience, I knew with my injuries that time was important because of the amount of blood I was losing. And also not that, but now that my team knew I was still alive, they were trying to get to me and putting themselves in a greater harm. So I was trying to get out of there to prevent further injury, obviously loss of my own life. I don't think that's something that a lot of people who aren't in law enforcement or military would understand that your thoughts are twofold. One is how to protect my life and how to protect my members of my team. Yeah, uh, it's just, you know, I grew up military. I've been trained. I retired in the military in November of 2018 because of my injuries. I couldn't continue. So I, I, it's just been trained, instinctive training. that and you develop those bonds through the deployments I've been on, through the training with the, the tag team guys, all that. We developed that bond, and we get close ties. It's like another family away from home. How did you get off the porch? So I, I crawled uh, towards the east, northeast corner of the house, where there were no windows. I thought that'd be my best place to stand up. Even though he was shooting through the walls, there were no windows, so I thought he wouldn't see me. So I thought, I'll stand up here, I'll run for the perimeter guys, and then they can get me out of the area to treatment center. And at this point, was it like instinct or, uh, you know, the truth is, uh, when I've been in really bad situations, I, I couldn't explain it at the time you resort to your training and it almost becomes like muscle memory or instinct. And there's not a whole lot of thinking that goes on until later on at that point where you're trying to get yourself evacuated from the firefight. Were you thinking about how badly you're injured or was it just, I'm relying on my training. I'm moving. It, it was definitely relying on my training and instinct to get moving. Cause when my helmet did come off, that kind of almost threw me into that state of unbelief or shock because I knew at that point I'd been injured in the head also because the helmets don't just fall off your head. So I really had to focus on my breathing and my training at that point to, to get the move to get out of there. And were you immediately evacuated once you got out of harm's way or did, did they have to get the situation calmed down enough for them to get you evacuated? So anytime we do a tag team search warrant or call out, we always have an ambulance and a medical team on standby at a safer location. So once I got up and ran to the perimeter, which our perimeter patrol guys are a little bit further off, so it's 
a distance away from the actual residence. I got to them. I had nothing left. So one of the uh, patrol lieutenants who was on perimeter drug me behind a patrol car because when I got out there by them, I just collapsed. My adrenaline dunk, my blood loss, I had nothing left to move. So they drug me behind a patrol car, put a tourniquet on, and then threw me in one of the patrol vehicles and moved me to that ambulance staging area and cross-loaded me to the medical team on the ambulance. So the ambulance moved me to the staging area, a landing zone for a helicopter, and they flew me to the level one trauma center in Oklahoma City. How far away was that? uh, Oklahoma City is roughly 50 miles from where we're at. And when you went to the trauma center, uh, I'm... I know there's going to be multiple surgeries and uh, an extensive stay because you, you had severe injuries. Yep. Were you in critical condition? Was your life hanging in the balance, as they would say? Uh, I was listed critical initially from the blood loss and from my injuries. They weren't sure to the extent of the round, like the one that went to my upper arm, how much damage it had caused or if it might have changed path. But I was more critical because of my blood loss. Uh, how long were you in the hospital? I was in the hospital for about a month. That's a long time. The insurance companies are quick to get you out, so you must have been in really, really bad shape. Yeah, I had uh, numerous surgeries. They had a, I, they called it a debridement, where they go in and clean all the dead tissue and foreign objects out of your arm. They did that several times. They had to do a reconstruction surgery on my arm. I had that whole external fixator thing, and then I had what they call wound vax and suction to to keep the area clean and treated and sealed off from outside possibility of infections. Are you a married guy? Do you have children? I have three children. And I'm sure they were all made aware shortly after you were catastrophically injured. Yes, they knew I was injured. So unless you want to talk about that part, I'm probably just going to leave it alone. We can talk about it. How do they deal with it? Well, in the beginning, especially one of my children's, uh, she's only 10, so she's younger. They tried to let them know that I was injured at work, and it was serious, but didn't go into great detail of how bad I was hurt. And, And obviously, they weren't brought up there to see me immediately because I was in and out of surgery for the first few days. And your spouse, how did she deal with it? It hit her hard, but I think she was trying to be strong for the family and to make sure, you know, that she was taking care of everything back home, you know, lining up people to watch the younger kids. The older kids eventually came up to stay at the hospital and see me for a couple days. But she was trying to stay strong to deal with all that. We've had many survivors on the show that their loved ones were killed in line of duty and they talk about when they became aware that the person had died and they talked about their hope that it was just a serious injury they'd be okay and it's one of the most gut-wrenching conversations that i've ever had on this show Uh, so please let your spouse know if she ever wants to come on the show and tell her story she's more than welcome to do that okay okay um how old are the, the kids now how old are they now? Yeah. I have a 10-year-old, I have a 14-year-old, and I have a 17-year-old. And they're doing okay? Yeah. I'm glad to uh, hear that. They've had to help pick up the slack a little bit because I'm just limited on a lot of the things I can do now. Yeah. 
that's I think I'm pretty sure an understatement because you had I think how many surgeries in total? I've had nine so far. Potentially going to have a tenth uh, next month in August. And you've been doing physical therapy as part of your your rehab. I've been in physical therapy for about eighteen months. Eighteen months. And what's the diagnosis and prognosis uh, for your your injuries? Well, I've I've honestly already kind of exceeded what they thought I'd get back. Uh, I was pretty much told from the beginning that I would never be a police officer again. I would never have enough function or use of my right hand to do a lot of things that I need to do. So I've I have a little bit of movement in my thumb. Uh, I don't really have a whole lot of control of my fingers. They kind of curl in and out because I can squeeze on my hand a little bit, but I do not feel anything at all in my hands kind of on the outside of my thumb and then about my wrist is where my feelings start and by the way those hand injuries uh, mine seem minor compared to what you've been through um, and my, I had two surgeries and two steel plates multiple screws actually three surgeries and it ended my career at the ripe old age of 33 we are talking with police sergeant Matthew Schoolfield don't go anywhere We'll be right back. It is time to get off the sidelines and share your story. Join us at Creative Con in Chicago at the Metropolis Performing Arts Center on February 17th and 18th, where you'll learn actionable strategies from experts and doers to turn your dreams into reality. Our keynote speakers, panelists, expert-led workshops, and networking opportunities will help you overcome your roadblocks and effectively share your message to the masses. Creative Con is where you'll find confidence, community, and a clear roadmap to success. If you've ever doubted yourself, this is your chance to step out of your comfort zone and make your creative dreams a reality. Visit creativecon.com, that's C-R-E, the number 8, T-I-V-E-C-O-N.com to secure your tickets today. The future is yours. Speak it, write it, live it. Talking with Police Sergeant Matthew Schoolfield. Matthew was severely injured. He was shot multiple times with an AR-10. By the way, AR doesn't stand for assault rifle. It stands for armor light rifle. The 10 is a higher caliber than the AR-15. And that's about the extent of my ballistics experience. I, I'm not a gun guy. You know, I've been using them and carrying them, but you know, I'm not uh, like a lot of SWAT guys. They tend to be more weapons oriented, and I just never was that. So we were shot three times. A miraculous survival, considering that one of the rounds went through the ear hole of your Kevlar helmet and grazed your head. I imagine it could have been much, much, much worse. Oh yes, uh, the fact that it penetrated my helmet. A lot of people don't understand the helmets aren't necessarily bulletproof. They're ballistic. Their shape's designed to deflect as much as possible. So the fact that it penetrated and it being a larger caliber was actually beneficial to me because the bullet had enough power to just continue straight on with its path instead of get deflected and go bounce around inside of my helmet. And that could have been a very real risk for a TBI, couldn't it? Yes. Traumatic brain injury. Was that one of the resulting injuries or no? I haven't been diagnosed with it yet. They're still watching things and checking things. I did have a lot of, you know, damage to my right ear 
I've had some vertigo and equilibrium issues because of the trauma to my ear and things like that. I still have shrapnel in my face. Stuff they got to watch. That's an understatement. You're saying, I got to watch that. It's like, hey, I got to watch a ball game. No, this that's a lot more serious than you make it sound. Yeah, I try to, you know, just take it one day at a time and be positive that I'm still here and hopefully help other people in the future. What's the prognosis, long-term prognosis? He said, obviously, that you, you probably never be a police officer again. What are they saying is the, the situation with your arm and your, your head and ear? Well, I've had, I have hearing loss in my right ear. It's minimum compared to what has happened. They thought it would be worse, but they don't know if it's going to continue to deteriorate over time or if it'll stabilize. But for the most part, I've gotten over the equilibrium and vertigo stuff. I still have some pressure issues. Kind of like when you're changing altitude, it feels like you get that pressure in your right. ear. I have to deal with that constantly. And your arm and hand? I have a lot of weakness and, you know, fatigue and numbness and tingling in my arm. The pain, you kind of get used to it over time, but it does hurt. I don't, like I said, I don't have a lot of use with my right hand. And trying to do things with it and that. Uh, you know, it's not designed to do the way I'm trying to adapt to learn to do them now. So it's causing a lot of stress on the rest of my arm now. And it's just not what it used to be. And you may attempt to get back to work, obviously not full duty, but uh, a light duty capacity, correct? Yeah, the year mark from the incident, I went back in a light duty capacity to work, you know, administrative office stuff, help out where I could with equipment reports, things like that. And what's your situation with the police department now? Well, uh, we have contracts and all that. You know, they told me in the beginning, don't worry about anything. The special circumstances will take care of you. But I got over six months working light duty, and then they took light duty away from me. So now I'm at the house going in between physical therapy and doctor's appointments. And what's the outcome? I mean, they talked about retirement, uh, obviously a medical retirement. According to the police pension board, it's too early to do the medical retirement stuff because I'm still under doctor care with pending surgeries potentially. So it falls back to my employment side where I've been told I've ran out of FMLA, which is what protects your job. And I've had to file for extended leave of absence requests, things like that. And this is the part where it gets kind of baffling. I wanted to defend most of the agencies, and I, I, I do believe they really mean when they say, we'll do our best to take care of you. But once you hit a certain point uh, where doctors and lawyers are involved, it, it becomes a situation where it's out of the hands of the police department and falls in the hands of the city, the county, or state. And workers' compensation and uh, numbers about allotment, what they got to have. Is that the situation you're in? They're kind of forcing your hand here? Yeah, I think it's, you know, above my agency per se i don't know how far what the extent of it is but you know they say they're trying to follow state laws and protect my job but then i've run out of fmla and now there's extended leave of absence but i've talked to other people have been injured line duty that have been on light duty for you know five or six years so i don't i don't know where the difference is is it a possibility that you could be terminated before this is all resolved well, when they tell me my, you know, my FMLA's ran out and I have to file for an extended leave of absence, because FMLA protects your job. Extended leave of absence is protecting my job, but it's only good for so long. And 
if you're on an extended leave of absence, that's without, you know, pay. They don't have to give me any of my benefits, all those things. So to me and everybody I talk to, you know, at that point, it's my employment's coming to an end. So you're at the point right now where you were shot in the line of duty. You had 12 years on the job. It's not a disciplinary thing. You've not been in disciplinary problems. You've had severe catastrophic career and, and life-changing injuries. And you're in a position where you and your family could possibly lose health insurance and all those other benefits because you're kind of like in limbo land. Yes, sir. How incredibly unfair does that sound? It feels really unfair and almost like you've been abandoned. And that's what I get from a lot of guests on the Law Enforcement Today show, that when they're severely injured and they survive, they feel like they're abandoned by their agency and, and to some degree, a lot of their coworkers because they're kind of stuck where they don't know what to do. Well, my coworkers have, you know, done a lot for me, stepping up to check on me and do things, put things together to try to raise money to help me out. And that's one of the things I just don't quite understand, Matthew, is that... We see GoFundMe campaigns all the time for officers who are severely injured. And my first thought is, why aren't these agencies and these cities and these counties and states taking care of them and their family? Uh, and answer that question. And I guess this is a good lead into how I got introduced to you through the Violently Injured Police Officers Association, Detective um, Oliveira, uh, who's been on the show a long time ago. Uh, he made me aware of your situation what does VIPO do and and now you are part of their organization what are you trying to have accomplished well Mario got a hold of me I can't remember how long ago now I've been talking to him for a little while and they're trying to get bills passed to help officers that are injured violently injured in line of duty and we've had a situation where we had uh, Phil Rosell in Connecticut who was uh, shot accidentally during training that end his career and they just passed a law in Connecticut where when that does happen, if they're injured in the line of duty, that they get 100% of their pay. Uh, because what happens is, even when you're medically retired, and a lot of agencies, your pay goes down about 66 and two-thirds, and then your health insurance triples. Yep. Is that what you're looking at as a possibility for you and your family? Um, I haven't looked a lot into what my medical retirement would be yet. Um, I think some of it depends on the ratings and any disabilities it might be and you know you, you, there's so many i didn't even realize because i've never really been hurt at work so many different avenues and angles because you get into the america's americans with disabilities act and all that stuff so this is where lawyers come in right yep what do you want to have happen do you, do you want to stay with your agency in light duty capacity do you want to be retired or you still don't know yet well for the longest you know my drive my hope you have that part where you want to be able to prove somebody wrong. The doctor says you can't do this, but you want to be able to prove them wrong. And that's what, you know, sometimes makes tag team members, military police. You know, some people are type A. We like to, to go above and beyond and try our hardest at whatever it is, no matter the obstacles. And I wanted to get back on the streets because that's where I feel I belong. So I can help those people who can't help themselves. Right. And a lot of people don't get it. For most of us in law enforcement, it's a calling. It's a vocation. It's just not something you decide to do one day and like, oh, I'm just doing it for the paycheck. Right. So now that you know, I'm starting to kind of come to the end of my medical treatment, I've started to plateau on my recovery. And the realization of, yeah, I'm probably not going to be a uniformed police officer anymore. 
it's starting to set in because everybody's asking me how I handle all this. And I've been able to stay optimistic and positive, but that's because I still had hope that I could get a good outcome. Well, for what it's worth, the hardest thing ever happened to me, Matthew, is when I was forced to retire. But it took a while, and I began to realize that there's many, many options in life after law enforcement. Uh, before we leave, you got to have you back on the show again in the future when we find out what's your status is going to be Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the show very much appreciated thank you for having me you can find us on facebook just search for the law enforcement talk radio show and be sure to click like i'd like to thank our guests for coming on the law enforcement talk radio show the law enforcement talk radio show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous am and fm radio stations across the country we're always adding more affiliate stations if you enjoyed the podcast version of the show which is always free please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.